Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study, as long as our campus is also joining with us in Appleton and Stevens Point. Just a warning, this jacket along with this carpeting could cause old hippies to go into LSD flashbacks. We are... <laughs> I don't know why I do it. We are, we are in the book of Esther, and uh, we have gotten to... Uh, Chapter 6. Now, real briefly, just to kind of wrap it up so far where we're at, um, Esther, this girl, has been captured as they went out looking for a new queen because the last queen ticked off the king. And he's looking for a new queen. And so anyway, through one series of events after another, Esther, this little Jewish girl, becomes the queen. Nobody knows she's Jewish. And uh, her uh, uncle Mordecai says, you know, don't tell anybody. So anyway, she is now in this incredible position, and Mordecai is always watching out for her and checking out how she's doing, and, uh, you know, he'd be at the gates. And uh, one of the days while he's at the gate, he hears this plot to kill the king from some of his uh, generals or whatever they are. I don't know what they were. But uh, anyway, so he uh, lets the plot be known, and, you know, they get the guys so the king's never in danger. Now... As far as we know, the king doesn't know anything about this. It's just one of these things they took care of on the down low. Mordecai gets no credit for it. Uh, in the meanwhile, there is this guy named Haman who is like the second in command. He's the second most powerful man in the land of Persia and uh, under Xerxes, this king. And uh, for some reason, we don't know. I don't know. And I've been studying this and I, nobody knows why Mordecai won't bow out of respect to Haman. There's all kinds of theories around. Mostly, they said it must have been a good reason for him to have done it. Uh, I don't know. I floated the theory that maybe he was being a jerk. I don't know. Nobody else. Well, a man of faith wouldn't be a jerk. Seriously? Some of the biggest jerks I ever met were men of faith. So, you know, there's people who just for some reason they get a craw in them and they just don't want to go along for whatever reason. We don't know why Mordecai wouldn't buy. Anyway, so it really ticks off Haman. And Haman knows that he's a Jewish guy and he's so mad. He's, he's got all this power. He could easily just move to get Haman or Mordecai killed. But he ups the ante. He says, you know, let's kill them all. Let's kill all these Jews. I'm sick of these Jews. So there's this major plot and they draw lots to find out what day we're going to kill them all. And they come up with a date, and they sent these edict all throughout the land, and on this day, all the Jews of the land will be killed. And I'm sure there were people who, you know, hated them and gave them a hard time and egging them on, and eventually we're going to kill all you people on this day, because everybody's totally freaked out. Well, Mordecai, Esther doesn't hear anything about it. She's walled off in the palace. Mordecai comes to her and says, hey, we got a problem. They want to kill us all. And she says, what can I do about it? I can't do it. I can't even go see the If I go see the king without permission, I can get killed. If, if he doesn't stretch out a scepter for me, I'm dead meat. And Mordecai says these famous words, you know, who knows, but for such a time as this is why you're where you're at today, for such a time as this. Sometimes we don't know why we're at, where we're at in life. Yeah, sometimes it seems like circumstances are just unfair and stuff, but who knows where God is twirling you around one place or the other. So anyway, Esther makes this big decision. Says, okay, live or die, I'm going to do it. So she goes to the king 
And fortunately, the king holds out a stuff. He really likes her, so I don't know if it's that much of a risk for her, but she was pretty afraid. So anyway, she comes forward and says, listen, I have a really big request. And he says, ask whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, which is very common. These kings would make these statements. Even Herod, remember when uh, uh, you know, his wife's daughter did the big fancy dance in front of everybody, and he says, ask anything you want up to half my kingdom. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist. So that was kind of their phrase. I think it was just a phrase to say that they're really generous people. No way would they give half their kingdom. And if anybody asked it, they'd probably just slit their throats right on the spot. But they're just this big, you know, they want to seem bigger than life. These people have egos like you can't begin to imagine. You think our politicians are bad? These people were virtually psychotic with their egos. They were as beyond measure. Uh, and so anyway, anything you want. She says, well, I, you know, I just, you know, I just want to, you know, can I, can I first have a, a dinner? And I want to have you and, and Haman, uh, uh, we're going to have this dinner. I think at first it was a lunch or something. He said, what do you want? Well, let's do this dinner. So he's all excited. Haman uh, is really thrilled that he gets in on this dinner that the queen throws. And uh, we, we pick it up. Let's back up just a little bit in chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. So Haman boasted to all his friends, his wife, you know, and everybody and about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him because the king had made him like this Hoshimama dude and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. <laughs> I am something special, all right? So, of course, Esther's wanting to just use this opportunity to point out this guy's trying to kill all the Jews. So he doesn't know any of this. So he's really excited about it. She's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate because he's still ticked off at Mordecai. And you think he would just have him off. Well, anyway, his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said, listen, look, get a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, about 75 feet. So this big yo mama pole. And the way they would execute people is they would have them impaled. <laughs> Giant shish kebabs, all right? So they say, just have the pole set up and then ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. You know, just get rid of this guy. You can kill all the Jews later on this special day. So uh, then go to the king, uh, to the banquet, and then you can enjoy yourself. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman. So he had the pole set up. So here, everything is set. He's got the pole set up. Uh, all this tension is coming. He's going to off Mordecai. And then this big day is going to come where all these Jews are going to be killed. Well, chapter 6. Now, the very next verse says that that night the king could not sleep. I'm sure God was troubling him, but he could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. <laughs> so if you can just get a picture here. I can't sleep. Read me a book. Read me a book about how wonderful I am. This is it. Sounds like something I do. You know, read me a book about how great I am. So they go get the record of the king, and they're reading, oh, your king did this fabulous thing, this wonderful thing happened to the king, all the record of the king. And in this chronicle, it was recorded, uh, uh, we see in verse 2, it was recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, these two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So that's when he hears it read because it was written in the official record. They've recorded everything. 
So they're reading this and talking about these two guys and this Mordecai exposed it and we were, you know, we killed these two guys. And, and then the king says, really, what, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So the king is thinking, wow, I mean, this guy saved my life. Or at a minimum, this plot, that if it hadn't been discovered, I could have gotten killed. So yeah, saved his life. It's kind of an important thing. No one's recognized him. All of a sudden, the king hears somebody stirring out in the courtyard. And the king said, Who, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he'd set up for him. So he's just coming in, because before anything, later in the day, he's got this party, he wants to go, and, but you know, they don't see the king first. I got this pole, and we just shish Mordecai. He really irritates me. Uh, but the king, of course, is thinking, hmm, this Mordecai guy, he saved my life. I wonder what we could do for him. So this guy comes in. He's there to ask the king to impale Mordecai. So his attendants answered, well, Haman is standing in the court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. The king liked Haman. He was like his number two guy, had all these honors to him. So when Haman entered, the king asked him, now the king is thinking about Mordecai. All right? This is a fabulous account. Actually, it's rather hilarious. So the king uh, asks Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor. Now Haman thinks, he's talking about me, right? And we see this, so Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So, so the answer is the king. So now Haman starts suggesting to the king how he should honor this man whom he thinks is himself. He says, well, for the man the king delights to honor have them bring a royal robe the king has worn on a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king goes, great idea. So go at once, the king commanded, get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and don't neglect to do anything you recommended. Well, Haman freaks. What? He hates this guy. He can barely enjoy all his glories in life because he so hates Mordecai. That's when his wife and everybody says, just off the dude. Go to the king. You can off him. No big deal. He goes in there. Now the king says, now he's not about to go. Oh, wait a minute, I thought you meant me. What's he going to do? So he freaks. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. So Haman himself has Mordecai, and he's up there like King for an eight. You know, like the old margarine commercials. And he's walking around, and he's throughout the whole city on this big fancy horse, and he's got to proclaim to everybody about what a great guy Mordecai is. This is killing him. This is not how he had expected this day to go. So anyway, afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, back where he normally hangs out, but Haman rushes home with his head covered in grief. Oh, my gosh! And he tells Jerez, his wife, and all his friends what had happened to him. And, of course, now they freak. And they go, oh. 
since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, they're all freaking out. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Then the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Oh, I forgot about dinner. So now he gets dragged off to dinner. You know, I'm thinking, let the guy shower or something. He's got to reek after holding a horse all day long. Anyway, all I know is they couldn't get him. He's got to go. So they go to this, to this dinner. All right. Now, uh, so the king, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to uh, Queen Esther's banquet. So Queen Esther had this banquet. La, la, la. And you have to remember, these days when they had banquets, as we read earlier, they were big stinking deals. They lasted days. So Esther throws this big Yomama banquet. The only two people there are the king and Haman. Of course, Haman thinks this is great. So as they were drinking wine on the second day, so they, this is day two of partying at this big banquet, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom will be granted. Liar, yes, I can give half the kingdom. But that's what they always said. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life. This is my petition. Well, now the king is like, grant your life? I didn't say you had to be killed. Who said you had to be killed? I mean, this is like, because he doesn't know that she's Jewish because Haman had talked him into this decree that said you got to kill all the Jews on this day. So she says, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female servants, I, I wouldn't have said anything. You know, yourselves were slaves. You know, I'd have been quiet, but be, because no such distress would justify troubling the king. I mean, these people feared coming before the king because he had the power of life and death. And you have to remember, and we're going to see this in a minute, it's, it's quite shocking. Life back in these days, there was no value on human life. We value human life way more that I think anybody ever has since the beginning of mankind on this planet. People used to be cut up and killed, and they never thought anything of it. Very low value on human life. So anyway, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is this man, the man who's dared to do such a thing? He didn't put together the dots on this. And Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this file, Haman! Well, Haman's thinking, oh, no! No, you know, this could just make it any worse. So here, he doesn't know she's Jewish. He's ordered this decree. He thinks he's there for the banquet. Now she points to him, he's trying to kill me. Well, then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Well, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, these guys knew what was coming. Life was of little interest, really, to much of anybody. He's told, well, he stays behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace guard to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now, get this picture. Esther's hanging out on the couch. He's leaning over the couch, says, please, and he falls onto the couch with the queen there. And the king walks in. Ah! This is getting worse. So the king exclaimed, will you even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? So he thinks he's trying to rape her. Or who knows whatever. I don't know. All I know is this is really, really bad. If you're Haman, it's great for all the Jews. 
All right. Well, as soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. He's toast. This man is dead man walking. Then Harbinah, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, you know, there's this pole. <laughs> Reaching 75 feet in the air. Someone conveniently set out. Well, he set that out because he wanted to f- impale Mordecai. So he says, you know, there's a pole out there, and it stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke, to help, spoke up to help the king. Well, the king said, well, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. So they axed this guy off. Now, to this day, uh, in the uh, Jewish tradition of the uh, Feast of Pumin or whatever they call it, it's Paul Pumin, it's a feast or celebration or whatever, since this time, which we'll read now, they celebrate this every year, remembering the time that the entire nation was saved. And one of the traditions is they read this story. And every time they read about, you know, uh, you know, Haman, everybody was, <laughs> and then they start talking about him getting him impaled. They're all, yay! They're all cheering, you know, to this day, remembering what this big deal. So chapter eight. So that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. So everything Haman owned, remember, he was extraordinarily wealthy. Probably wealth only second to the king himself. Well, he gives it all to the queen, the enemy of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. Now he finds out. He didn't know. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So now Mordecai's running this gigantic estate. I guess Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet, weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, uh, which he had devised against the Jews. Because all that's happened so far is we barbecued Haman. The edict is still standing. What are we going to do about this edict on such and such day? They're going to off all these Jews. And of course, there's people all over the kingdom who can't wait for this because they hate the Jews. Well, then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther as she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman uh, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my own people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Well, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, Uh, They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces reaching from India to Kush. Now, these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers uh, who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So they take off Pony Express, they take off in a blitzkrieg to let everybody know what the new rule is. So the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves and gives them the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Uh, So basically what he does is he so swings and 
the mood swings these guys have got to be going through. You know, I don't know if these guys were some of these kings, seriously. I wonder if they were a little mental. Uh, they were bizarre in their egos and stuff. And just like that, they would order tens of thousands, an order that would result in the death of tens of thousands of people. Uh, so what was happening for the Jews, because originally he said okay with his plan until he finds out, wait a minute, this is Esther. And why you, I like these people. What are you doing? He, he switches his mind, knocks off Haman, and now issues a decree that the Jews now have the right to go kill anybody that they consider an enemy and to take any of their property that they wanted to. All right? So uh, the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So now they have the opposite day, the day they get to go out and kill the people that they didn't like. I mean, it's all very bizarre. Wait till you see the numbers of people that were killed. It is quite shocking. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command. The edict was issued in the city of Susa. Now, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. I'll bet. I mean, they were literally looking at extinction. And it's no small deal. There was no court to go to. I mean, once the king ruled, that was it. The king rules, all these people are going to die, they're all going to die. It's not even a question in their minds. They're going to die, the grandma's going to die, the babies are going to die, everybody dies on this. Now, boom, just like that, everything has been turned around. Wow, so they are celebrating big time. Uh, and many people from other nationalities became Jews because of the fear the Jews had seized them. <laughs> They were so afraid of the Jews, they decided to convert to Judaism so the Jews wouldn't kill them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the, enemy of the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what, pleased, what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and they got a bunch of names here that I don't want to read, uh, they also grabbed the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hand on their plunder. This, this is repeated over and over again. They did this vengeance, but they, and they had the right to take all their money, but they didn't take any of it. Uh, why? I don't know, but they didn't. Maybe they didn't want to be accused that it was about the money. Uh, the number of those killed in the city of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and the ton sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa, they've got them. Uh, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Well, now what is your position? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out on this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. Ay, ay, ay. So now they shish kebab the boys. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. 
the Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on their plunder. Meanwhile, the remaining Jews, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, also assembled themselves to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 men. Now, that is just stunning, the numbers here. You know, 10 people killed is shocking. Three, four, five hundred is wow. Before they're done, it's 75,000 people are axed off uh, in retribution by the Jews. Now, these were all people who hated them and had given them a hard time and were looking forward to killing them. You know, this, there's going to be, this is not the entire land of Persia. I mean, so you're talking a lot of places. The numbers add up pretty quick. So they basically turned back on all these people that were going to kill them, and they knocked them off instead. Uh, you can see when Jesus comes along, it's a little shocking to them when he says, love your enemies. You see what I'm saying? Pray for those who would despitefully use you. What? So their culture was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If, you, before, if, I, if God blesses me, I get to kill you before you can kill me. Well, Jesus comes and says all that on its head. And, you know, so anyway, it is what it is. Um, so they off 75,000. Holy stinking cow. But they didn't take any of their, their money or their plunder, property, whatever. Now, this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Personally, I'd want to go vomit after seeing so many people killed, but you just have to remember, this is a time in life. This is thousands and thousands, you know, a good, I don't know, probably 2,500 years ago, guessing at the raw numbers in my head. You know, it was, the world was a very brutal place in which to live. Again, the way we look at stuff today, it is entirely different. I just read a thing that's just popping into my head here. I don't know if you saw this going around on the internet today, but how Christianity uh, valued children and how it changed culture. Uh, and they go back historically and look at before this, children were, uh, weren't valued really at all. And they didn't really, if anything, they said that infant mortality rate and the child mortality rate was so high, people would intentionally not try to get attached to them. Because, you know, I don't, don't get too close to that one. You know, he could off off in it because there were so much, you know, these were days of plagues and all kinds of horrible things. And it was Jesus and his teaching of let the little children come to me and don't rebuke them. And it really changed the world. What Jesus did and the teachings of the gospel are quite stunning. Up until that time, the world was a really brutal place. And people didn't value life in general, certainly didn't even value children. Uh, you know, that's King Herod's, you know, when I just kill, you know, every child, boy under the year of two in Bethlehem. No, they didn't think anything of it. It was, just, it was just bizarre, strange way. Anyway, the Jews in Susa, however, assembled themselves on the 13th, 14th day, day of feasting and joy. Uh, verse 19. Uh, that is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. So to them, it's kind of like Christmas. It's a big deal. So Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and, uh, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. 
He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and to give presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman's son of whatever, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, which was the lot. Remember, they drew lots to see what they were going to off them. Uh, so it's, today it's the day, still the Feast of Purim is what the Jews celebrate, which is the Feast of the Lots. Uh, uh, but when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued the written orders and the evil scheme Haman had basically just repeats everything we just read. All right. Uh, 29, verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. Uh, and Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127th provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the record. So this is what happened. Then we have chapter 10, one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. I don't know if it is the shortest chapter. One surprise me. It's very, very... Anybody know what the shortest chapter in the Bible is? Anybody into... Bible trivia? I have no idea. I don't know. Nobody knows. I mean, this one's really tiny. It's like, oh, what is it? Three verses. But it's chapter 10, Esther chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Now he taxed them. And all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? I said anals last time, in case you wonder why I'm laughing. Uh, Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of the people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Bada bing, bada boom. There you have the book of Esther. Uh, what's interesting uh, throughout the whole book, it's uh, the, only, the only other book... Uh, is one of the two books in the Bible that never even says the word God. It's never mentioned. God's word is never, but clearly they, it says they prayed. They obviously prayed to God. It just happens to be, it doesn't actually say it. Um, uh, there's no record that God told anybody to do anything, you know, but these people who acted in wisdom and understanding and looking for the favor of God. And, and as, I, as I've been preaching for several Sundays now, you know, sometimes God shows up and tells you, lets you know clearly what you're supposed to do. Other times you just got to use your brain. And these people used their brain. And God didn't have to speak to anybody, but they knew what to do. And God's favor was clearly on them. And this is one of the dramatic turnarounds, one of the most dramatic turnarounds in the Bible. Uh, second, well, I don't know, it could be a tie, actually. I mean, uh, I'd say second to Joseph. Joseph, uh, his life went from bad. His brother sold him off as a slave. Uh, he goes to work for this guy. Uh, as Joseph starts turning into this very good-looking boy, hot Chico, and uh, the guy's wife was trying to seduce him, so he runs. She says he tried to rape her, so now he winds up in prison. His life sucks. I mean, he's in the prison, and we're not talking Brown County lockup here. We're talking, you know, thousands of years ago. What was that? Off the top of my head, 5,000 years ago, something like that. So it was just a brutal time. In the morning, uh, Pharaoh calls for Joseph 
Joseph, they pull him out and they clean him up because he reeks. He's in this prison. They shave him and everything and, and uh, get him dressed. They bring him to the king. And uh, by the end of the day, because he interprets this dream that nobody knew except Joseph could interpret it. And at the end of the day, he becomes the second most powerful man in the world, just like Mordecai does here. Now, back then it was in Egypt. Here it's in the king of Persia. But Xerxes, it was a massive world-dominated kingdom at this time. And so, stop and think. I'm talking about a turnaround. Here the guy wakes up in prison one day, and by the end of the day is the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh himself. Massive turn in a day. In a day. Same situation here. Uh, I'd call the second because a little looser timeline, but it's still heavy. These guys are about to all die. Uh, Haman comes in to have Mordecai shish kebobbed. Boom, everything turns around. Haman gets shish kebobbed. And the decree is reversed. And Haman now becomes the second most powerful and wealthy man in the known world world. Uh, it's, it's just what's great about accounts like this. You know, oftentimes people think, well, my situation is so bad. Uh, where I'm at is in such a mess. You know, God, God can't do anything. Uh, but God can do anything. And never feel that your situation is so bad, that your uh, marriage is so horrible, that your kids are so psycho, that your disease is so advanced. I mean, you know, these things oftentimes keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think Satan just pushes and pushes and pushes as hard as he can to make it as bad as he can, as long as he can, for one major reason. And that is so that you will lose heart and you give up. It's just that simple. Uh, but as we've seen in this story and along with Joseph and how God can, man, you might have woke up in a prison this morning and think there's not a chance my life could turn around. And just like that. God can turn your life around. So uh, I, I get it. Circumstances sometimes are horrible and the pain and, and the convenience and stuff. But uh, the important for, thing for us is not to lose heart. You say, what if in the end, that which I fear falls upon me anyway? Well, you know, you just still want to live in a place of faith. People say, I'm trusting God. Well, what if I die trusting God? Well, you don't want to die not trusting God. <laughs> I mean, seriously, what's the alternative here? <laughs> you know, trust God to the very end. What if I die? Then you die trusting God. Praise God. That's the best way to check out of this place. Okay? So uh, don't lose heart. I know it's easy to lose heart at times. Things in life get really, really, really heavy and, uh, and discouraging, and it's, and it's hard not to, to want to give up. I get it. But uh, anyway, so... Um, that takes us back to Ezra. We are actually in the book of Ezra going through this timeline. So what happens with Ezra is he's talk, he starts out talking about King Cyrus. Then he's at King Darius in chapter 6 of Ezra. And in chapter 7 of Ezra, he starts talking about Xerxes, which is the king after Xerxes. This whole account of what happened in Persia with the kings and Xerxes and all this stuff, Ezra doesn't even talk about which is quite stunning. You have to jump over to Esther, which is what we did, to see what happened with Xerxes. Uh, and then we pick it up again at the chapter 7, uh, verse 1. And then we pick up and we start reading about, uh, we won't do it now, we'll wait till next Wednesday, to pick up the rest of the account 
of what happened with the next king because all this time they're still building and rebuilding uh, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem that had just been annihilated and brought just to dust. It was such a disaster when, uh, uh, you know, uh, they came through and got swept off and the Babylonians came through and into Babylonian captivity and destroyed everything as God had warned them. So for 70 years they were in captivity and then boom, they come back here. Uh, interesting, during this time, if you remember, Daniel is still around through all of this. Uh, there's all these stories that are all interchanging. God was clearly at work through all of this stuff. And, uh, and how many times they tried to off Daniel and God saved him. And, and uh, Ezra and these guys go back and start building the temple and God's calling them back and they're going and people are trying to fight him and hold him back. And Nehemiah talks about it next and how God was with them and how Haman comes along, tries to kill all the Jews and God steps in the middle of all that and saves their bacon there. And I, well, they don't eat bacon. But uh, all these different things that were going on in their lives. I mean, this is a very active time biblically in the history of the Bible. When we get to the end of this, which won't take very long now, um, that's pretty much the end of the, uh, of the Old Testament. We actually will even jump into, uh, because uh, uh, the last book in the uh, Old Testament, which is called, what is it called? Malachi, yes, is also written during this time. So all of this is happening, and then, boom, uh, for good, I forget what the timeline is, three to 500 years now, there are no dramatic events that happen. What happens is the, king, this, the nation of Israel now is rebuilding, and it rebuilds, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, according to the prophecy of Daniel, who told them that within a certain timeline, the Messiah would come, and he did. That's how these kings from the east knew to go looking. You often wonder, you know, the, we three kings of Orion. Well, we don't know how many kings there were, but that's how the song goes. How did they know about him? Because they heard about it from these guys who lived in Persia and Daniel and these writings. They all knew this stuff. They were more aware of Jesus coming in the time frame than the Jews themselves at the time. And what happens is the Jews go from not paying attention to any of God's rules and living very carelessly to after this, they start to get really nitpicky. And, and we're going to read this. Ezra and the guys do some really odd things, which we'll discuss coming up. They're like, what are you doing? But this is just the beginning of what becomes the Pharisees and stuff. And they were really nitpicking about everything. And then they actually swung the other way, where they were so picky about every little thing uh, in the Old Testament. But it was all in God's timing. Jesus comes along and tries to snap out of it. You know, guys, relax a little bit. But uh, it's all fascinating how all this stuff comes together. Anyway, we'll pick that up when we come back next Wednesday. God bless you. Have a great rest of the night. See you Sunday.